so in The Greatest, we're going to spend five weeks talking about some of the complexities of faith and the fact that they're actually very, very simple, yet very, very challenging. Now, in my life, in my life, I, I grew up, and I'm going to silence my phone, um, so <laughs> forgive me on this. I'm not in my Sunday morning routine again yet. In, in my life, I've been on a number of teams. So I grew up playing Little League Baseball, did all that through high school. I've been on soccer teams. I've been on ice hockey teams. I've been on roller hockey teams. I've been on men's church league softball teams. I've been on co-ed teams. I've, I've been on all sorts of teams. Now, one of the things that has happened on these teams, and maybe you've experienced this as well, is that on, on different teams, you will find yourself doing things only because you're a part of that team. So in middle school, our basketball team, on every single basketball game day, we had to show up to school in dress shirts and a tie. And so you have these kids actually walking around, sometimes in athletic shorts, dress shirts, and ties. Now, I actually coordinated a little bit better than that. But on game days, you wear a dress shirt and a tie. One of the times I got a little bit scared, maybe a little bit scared of what would happen if I followed through, was when my high school baseball team decided, hey, after practice today, before our tournament this weekend, we're all going to get in the locker room and we're all going to shave our heads. And so we're going to do that one. Uh, that fell through. That fell through. And so very, very happy about that. But even, even on my adult rec hockey team, we all bought hoodies and then we went on a 30-day diet together. And so I guess when you play adult sports together, you realize how out of shape you are. And so you kind of need that motivation. But, but the point of the matter is, like, we... We do these things because we're a part of something bigger than ourselves. Anytime you're a part of something bigger than yourselves, you're going to have some different types of expectations placed on you, if you that are different than if you weren't a part. And so for, for the, the, the middle school basketball team, we didn't expect anybody not on our team to show up in a dress shirt. For the baseball team, we wouldn't have expected anybody not on the team to shave their head. And for my adult hockey team, we didn't expect other people to go on diets or buy our hoodies or anything like that. It was only because we were part of the team that we had those expectations. Now, we have to understand, and this is one of the concepts that we'll talk about within the greatest, is that identifying with something bigger than yourself, claiming to be a part of something bigger than yourself, inherently has expectations that are placed on you that don't originate from within. If you say, I'm going to be a part of something bigger, Along with that goes expectations from the outside that you're called to live by. Now, one of the biggest frustrations, maybe the biggest tensions that you'll experience on a team is when there's these expectations that are placed on the entire team and 98% of the team lives that expectation out, but the 2% do not. And so if you've, if you've been on any team and you've had those 6 a.m. or even the 5 a.m. practices, it only takes a couple of practices that go by where that one player, that one teammate just shows up late over and over and over again before there starts to be some tension between the team and that individual. Because what happens is we expect that if we're all bought in, if we're all doing this, then that means we're all bought in and we're all doing it. And so anybody on the outside of the expectations starts to create some tension between them and the rest of the team. Now, one of the most meaningful teams I've ever been on, and I'm going to use it in the sense of a team, like one of the most meaningful teams I've ever been on was in my high school marching band. And so I was one of those interesting or weird guys in high school who played baseball and was in band. I was an athlete and a musician. And so it was, I had just a couple of, I say a couple, quite a few groups of people that I ran around with. And it was an interesting dynamic. But I'll have to say, marching band in itself is a very real team. 
Any, any experience that you've had on a sports team, I guarantee you that those dynamics, those team dynamics exist on a marching band. Now, instead of like 20 people at a baseball practice or even 80 people at a football practice, at, at a marching band rehearsal, you're going to have upwards of 200 people. 200 people that are trying to accomplish the same things at the same time. Now, um, one of the expectations that our marching band had, and this was, this was really awesome to witness, was that as soon as you cross the sideline, now, I'm going to take a step back, not assuming that everybody has been to a marching band rehearsal. Okay, so you have a football field, right? Now, in marching band, in marching band, the band marches on the football field. And so, if you've ever seen a football field, you know where they're going to be. And so the sidelines on football mean something. The sidelines for marching band mean something as well. The, the yard markers for football mean something, and the yard markers for marching band mean something as well. And so when you enter the field for marching band, you're doing the exact same thing in football. You're crossing the sideline. Now, the expectation was for our band that as soon as you cross that sideline, as soon as you step over it, absolute silence, 100% silence. You could not make a sound that was not directed by the, the drum major for you to make. No exceptions. Like there was zero exceptions to this rule. It doesn't matter if, if somebody fell down. It doesn't matter if somebody gets hurt. It doesn't matter. You don't make a sound when you cross that sideline. And so every year you have summer band. You're getting ready for the fall to start, and you have this new crop of freshmen that are coming in. And every year, it takes a little bit for them to kind of get acclimated to what it actually means to see 200-plus people silent on a parking lot together. And so, so every year, you have these freshmen, and they're, you know, they're having fun. They're, they've been out all summer long. They haven't been around their friends a whole lot. And so you have all this energy, all this movement, and these freshmen, you know, they're just standing there walking, talking, stuff like that, and they step across the sideline, and they're still walking and talking. And then a section leader or a director or whatever looks over at that freshman and just does this. And the freshman is like, what, what does that mean? Like, okay. And so you'll see some freshmen that hold up their hands like, no, 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 stupid freshman, come on. Like, no, 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 no. Like, it means 10. Well, 10 what? 10 push-ups. Get down and do 10 push-ups. You broke the rule. The expectation is that when you cross that sideline, you're silent. And so the freshman reluctantly goes to the ground and does their 10 push-ups, gets up, and starts back to rehearsal. Now, for the kids that are like bought in and they kind of get it, it takes about 30 total push-ups during the duration of summer band for them to get it, for it finally to stick in their head, hey, when I cross this sideline, I will be quiet. But there's an interesting thing that happens, and it happens every year. It happens all across the United States on every marching band, on every team. You'll have some people that cross, and they keep talking, and they're giving those push-ups. And it happens again. And again, and by the fourth or fifth time, you know what happens? Instead of just doing the push-ups, they start muttering under their breath. They start grumbling. And then when they get to the sidelines afterwards, they start complaining about how dumb it is that they have to do these push-ups. How, how wrong it is for them to have to be quiet during rehearsal. And so this expectation of silence during rehearsal, you have parts of the group that begin to reject that expectation. They say, I want to be a part of this band, but I just don't want to live by those expectations. It creates tension and discord. And then on the other side of it, you have these like, like band kids, like real band kids. They're like, I don't care if it's a 6 a.m. rehearsal. I'll be there. 
And they, as freshmen, they're like, the coolest thing in the world, the coolest thing in the world is that, that I could be up there on that podium as the drum major one day. Like, all I want to do in life is just wave my hands like this and make sure that everybody knows how to stay together. And they get that rule, and they look at the people who are grumbling and complaining, like, I just don't, like, do you not know? Like, do you not realize that if we're quiet, we can rehearse that much better? Do you not know that if, if we're quiet, we can get so many more reps, and we can actually go to BOA, we can go to state, we can go to finals, and we can win something? And they're bought in. And so because they're bought in, the expectations don't bother them. Because they're bought into something bigger than themselves and they're wholeheartedly bought in, they'll do anything that's asked of them without grumbling or complaining. And so in, in today's scripture, we find two groups of people. We find two groups of people that have identified with the same something bigger. Now this something bigger is not a band, it's not a team, it's not a job, it's not a, it's not a school. It's God himself. Two groups of people that claim to be true worshipers of the one true God. And so on one side of the conflict, you have the Jewish leaders, the Jewish religious leaders. And so they've, they've, they're kind of like the incumbents. They've been there for a while. Uh, they are the authorities. They've been teaching people how to be followers of God for a long time. And they have their different viewpoints, and they have their authority. But, but on the other side, you have Jesus and his disciples, the newcomers, the, the people that are new to the scene, and they're actually kind of a challenge to the authority of the existing leaders. But the interesting part on all of this, and this is, this is one of the things that 2,000 years later today that we have to be very clear about the, the culture that was going on. Jesus did not step into the world and, and try to get rid of Judaism. He was, he was not showing up 2,000 years ago saying, guys, you're not worshiping the one true God. You, you, need to, you need to pay attention to something else. He came as a fulfillment to Judaism, to, to bring it to completion, to bring the fullness of the worship of the one true God to completion. And so, ideally, the Jewish leaders and Jesus would be walking together in the exact same direction. But what happened time and time again is that we find conflict between the two of them. And so because the Jewish leaders are having some of their authority taken away by Jesus, <coughs> because the crowds are starting to follow Jesus and starting to want to know what Jesus says, they, they come up with different strategies to kind of trap Jesus in his words, to kind of trick Jesus to any time they can debate him, they want to debate him so that if he, if he missteps, misspeaks, that some of his authority, some of his credibility goes away. And so we're going to step into one of those traps today. Matthew 22, verse 34. Matthew 22, verse 34. I'm going to give you a second to turn there. Matthew 22, verse 34. As an aside, um, I, if you're new to this life group, if you're new to FBG, um, what is used in most settings from a teaching standpoint is the ESV translation, the English Standard Version. And so on most Sunday mornings, on most Wednesday nights, um, I will use the ESV translation. If you use something else, that's totally cool, but just know what will be on the screen is the ESV. And so if you have the Bible app open, you can go to that. Uh, if you want to follow along identically, if not, use whatever translation, it will it'll make sense. Matthew 22, verse 34. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. Now, if you read all of Matthew 22, you're going to see a couple of interactions before this one that state, thank you so much, that state where, where Jesus was tried to be 
where, where the Sadducees and the Pharisees tried to trap Jesus in his words in two different scenarios. And so the first one goes with the Pharisees, and he comes out on top. Then the Sadducees come up asking questions about the resurrection, and Jesus gives another great answer. And so in this last attempt, the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, and they're like, we got to put our heads together. we got to come up with something because the authority, the, the momentum, the respect of the crowd is going towards Jesus and not us. So, verse 35. One of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. One of the things I want to do is, is, is get out of our culture and get back 2,000 years ago for just a second. We see this phrase, this word lawyer, and in our day and age, there's different connotations that go along with that. And so you have Jim Adler, the tough, smart lawyer. You've got other guys like that that had their commercials on TV. And, and that's what we think of when we think lawyer. If your translation says an expert in the law, will you raise your hand? Yeah. One of the most common translations, and probably the, the literal meaning of this word, is an expert in the law rather than lawyer. And the reason I point that out is lawyer today is somebody who would, would defend people or be, be a, somebody who goes against people in defense of the law. A lawyer back then, in this context, an expert of the law, would be one of the Pharisees, one of the religious leaders who have studied the law portion of what we know to be the Old Testament, and are experts in that part, that section of Scripture. And so lawyer here is expert in the law. I point that out because of what comes next. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? The reason it's important is this is a guy who has probably been the preeminent person in the region when it comes to having something solidified in his mind about the law. Meaning, if there's ever a question about the law, he's probably the go-to guy. He's a regional expert in the law. And so the crowds around him, the locals, the people who, are, who, who have, have grown up there would know him to know the answer to this question. And if he doesn't know the actual outright answer to it, he knows, they know, that he can give a, an incredible argument for any, any stance he wants to take in this, because he knows it inside and out. So, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? I want to go back to two questions before this. The beginning of the chapter, the middle part of this chapter, Jesus responded to two other challenges. And this is a third challenge that has come his way. And so when faced with the greatest, this is something that we wrestle with today, and we kind of get this. Um, goat, goat, G-O-A-T, greatest of all time, Arguments, greatest of all time, goat arguments, are very, very common today. And so the most common one that I hear over and over again as far as goats is LeBron versus MJ. Who, who is the greatest basketball player of all time? LeBron, Michael Jordan. Well, I was going to say, this is a parenting teens class, and so the answer inherently is Jordan, right? Okay, go down to the eighth grade room and ask the question, who is the greatest of all time? LeBron. And some of them, these naive Young teenagers are going to say somebody like Steph Curry. Like, what in the world? I, okay. Okay. I, I, but, but listen, 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 listen. We, we ask these questions. Who is the greatest of all time? One of the ones that we've had in my fantasy football group is who's the greatest running back of all time? And so who's that? Frank Gore. Frank Gore? 
<laughs> Frank Gore. I, <laughs> I'm, my apologies to Frank Gore fans, but Frank Gore did not pop up in our discussion. Uh, guys like Barry Sanders and Emmett Smith. But all, all to say, when you have different eras and you have different perspectives, you're going to have arguments when it comes to the greatest of all time. One of the arguments in my house right now is Batman versus Superman. I'm sorry, Batman versus Spider-Man. So my, I have one son that loves Batman, one son loves Spider-Man, and they both think that they're absolutely the greatest. But I, I, I point those out. I point those out because this guy, the lawyer, his whole point, the whole point of the question is to discredit Jesus. Maybe not in the eyes of everybody, but in the eyes of somebody. And so he asks a question that we understand that it doesn't matter what he answers in the greatest of all time questions, there will always be people that disagree with you. Always. And so Jesus is not going to be able to answer this question and walk away with 100% of the crowd's support. He's going to walk away with a portion that agree with him. But this is debatable. Greatest of all time is debatable. And so he answers. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Watch this. And the second is like it. Now, this is, this is like cheating in our minds, right? Like, like, who's the greatest basketball player of all time? MJ and another guy. What? What? No, no, we asked for the greatest of all time. One, one, right? And so he says this, and the second is like it. And I just imagine, I just imagine that when he says the phrase, and the second is like it, like people are getting ready to pounce, the lawyer especially, because he's like, no, 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 I asked for one. I asked for one, and you're going to come out here and give me two? That's ridiculous. One, just one. But Jesus, being Jesus, doesn't really care about the, the menial stuff. He wants to get to the big picture. He says, the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. And he wraps it up with this. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. And so here's, here's one of the interesting things. Go back to who the lawyer is. He says, look, lawyer, you've studied the law. You tell me. Is there anything you've studied in the law of the Lord, anything that God has commanded of his people that falls outside of the realm of loving God with everything you are and loving people just the way you wish you could be loved? One of the interesting parts on this, and I love this, is that if you read the first passage about Jesus being challenged in Matthew 22, there's a response from the people. If you read the second one, there's a response from the people. If you read this one, silence. There's nothing said about the response. And I, I, just, I, just, I just have to assume, and I'm reading in between the lines here. I, I want to be very clear. I'm reading in between the lines here. My assumption is that the lawyer heard this response, and he said, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, and the lawyer said, okay, that sounds about right. I had never put it that way, but, but yeah, Ah, uh, that's, that's pretty comprehensive. Now, we're introducing the series, The Greatest, and we're talking about these two great commandments. And, and one of the reasons I'm drawing attention to this at this time of year is because in February, 
In February, Kevin Eckert, our senior pastor, is going to begin a series, a vision series for our congregation. And he's going to talk extensively about why FBG's vision says love God, love people, and help others do the same. Part of the DNA of who this church wants to be and strives to be is a congregation that loves God, loves people, and helps others to be the same. I mean, helps others to do the same, not be the same, do the same. And so as we introduce this to, to our, our student ministry families, as we introduce it to our teenagers on Wednesday nights, one of the things that we're going to do is kind of prime the pump a little bit to begin thinking about our place within this church that strives to love God, love people, and help others do the same. Now, um, when we hit these two commands, love God and love people, one of the things we have to understand is that these are not suggestions, these are not just encouragements, these are not pithy sayings, these are actual commands. I want to go back to the culture, the expectations that are placed on you anytime you claim to be a part of something bigger. When you want to be a part of something bigger, what goes along with that are expectations that originate from outside of yourself that you either agree to do or you reject. But when you reject the expectations that are placed on you, you are rejecting that something bigger. Now, I, I remember in band, and I'll go back to that, there were kids who rejected those expectations. They just didn't want, they did not want to be quiet. They thought it was so, so ridiculous that they would have to be silent for two to three hours an afternoon while rehearsing. They, they just could not come to terms with it. And so either after a few rehearsals, or even after a year or two, they walked away. They said, I don't want to be a part of band anymore because I don't want to meet those expectations. But for some reason, for some reason, we, we view religion, we view Christianity in such a way that the two greatest commandments, and they, they even include the S word, you shall love the Lord your God. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. We view those as if they're suggestions, optional. Something, something that we can take or leave as we feel like, but ultimately they're not really the grounding force they should be. Now, I want to um, kind of talk the nature of commandments before we get into small groups. And it, it's something that I think we know intuitively is true of ourselves and maybe be true of, of our kids, true in our families. When we love that something bigger, when we love the something bigger more than ourselves, there's no expectation that that something bigger is going to call us to that our heart rejects. When we love that something bigger, whether it's a team, whether it's a job, whether it's a family, whether it's another person, whatever it is, when we love that something bigger more than ourselves, any expectation that comes from that something bigger, we can take in stride. But when we love ourselves more than that something bigger, it's, it's at those moments when those expectations become either optional or causes for frustration. I'm sure you've had jobs like I have where, where it's like, man, I know, I know everyone is supposed to be here to do inventory when we're counting all the products on the shelves. But I'm a college student. I don't really feel like waking up and showing up at 4 a.m. to actually count how many ping pong paddles are on the shelves at Sports Authority. Like, that just... That's ridiculous. It's so ridiculous that I'm prepared to lose my job over it. Like, I, I did, by the way. And so, uh, yeah, 
Oh, man, college Michael. Anyway, so, but, but you've been there. Like, you've been there, and you, you've, you've felt those things where when the, the something bigger just isn't there for your heart, you're not bought in, that those expectations become burdensome. That, that's why I think that when Jesus lists out these two greatest commandments, that he's, he reveals his genius. I go back to this. He starts with the greatest commandment. You shall love the Lord your God. That's the first thing. You shall love the something bigger with everything you are. And if that is the foundation to faith, the foundation to following Jesus, that we love God above all else, then any expectation that follows, any expectation that follows, we take it, we say, okay, I can do that. Absolutely. Why? Because I love that something bigger more than I love myself. Because I love the Lord my God with all my heart, everything I am, all my mind, all my soul. So first, and so when we get to that second commandment that can be so difficult, especially in the holidays, we talked about this leading up to the holidays, about how hard it can be to love family, and now that the holidays are over, how hard it was to love family. Like, the second is like it, you shall love your neighbors as yourself, meaning, I can do that. Because it, this command that's placed on me, like it, it, may, it may be challenging, it may be hard, but I'm on board with it. Why? Because I love the Lord my God with everything. And so when he issues the command, the expectation, that as people who want to follow Jesus, people who want to follow the Lord, the command, the expectation is that we love our neighbors as ourselves. we can do that. Now, the early church got this, they understood this, and I'm going to read this passage, so if you want to turn to 1 John chapter 4, you can, you don't have to, it won't be on the screen, I'm going, to, I'm going to fly through this part, 1 John 4. I just want you to hear what the early church thought of these two commands and how they work together. So, dear friends, let us continue to love one another, for love comes from God. Anyone who loves is a child of God and knows God, but anyone who does not love does not know God. For God is love. If you don't love, you don't love your neighbor as yourself. If you don't love, you like the logical implication is you actually do not know God. God showed, this is verse 9, God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we may have eternal life through him. This is real love. This is awesome. This is real love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us. And sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. And so the greatest commandment is to love God with everything we are and to love our neighbor as ourself. But in this context, they say, even that is not real love. It pales in comparison to real love. Real love is that God would send his son for us. And so the love we offer to God and the love we offer to people is just a, a pale imitation of what God did for us. And so one of the awesome things is that Jesus gives incredible, incredible, incredible context is that we are called to love God with everything we are. We all are called to love our, our neighbors. We're called to love people just the same way we want to be loved. But any amount of love that we can do is just, just an imitation of the awesome, wonderful love that God poured out on us. So as we wrap up and you, you get a chance to talk about some things, I want to talk to the church people in this room, okay? And I, I say that um, because some of you may have grown up in church, some of you are not 
are, are not people who've grown up in church, but all of you right now are sitting in church. And so probably all of you right now are church people. Now, one of the fun, I'll say fun things, one of the things that happens um, during, during church is that you'll have a, a pastor or somebody stand up on stage, they'll go through a biblical text, and then they'll say, hey, here are some things I want you to think about or do this week. And so typically, if you've been a part of this student ministry, there'll be like three things. You can do this, this, and this. And so week one of the year goes by, and you have three things that you've been asked to do. Week two goes by, and now you're up to six. Week three goes by, and you're at nine. If you show up every Sunday, you're up to over 150 things that we've asked you to do over the course of a year. It can get very, very complicated. And the more time you spend in church, the more complicated it can tend to become. And so there are, are times in life where I sit there and say, look, I know, I, should I feed the homeless? Like, am I supposed to make homeless food bags and drive down to Austin and pass those out? Because like, I know somebody said something about that. Am I supposed to give to the special offering to make sure that Bibles can be translated from this translation? How many kids am I supposed to host through World Vision? Do I do an international mission trip? Do I do local mission trips? Do I, like, okay, I'm reading the New American Standard Bible personally, but somebody uses the ESV. What Bible plan do I use? Do I go through the book of James because it's like real practical? Do I get real deep theologically and go through Roman? What, what do I do? And it, that's like a week's worth of all the stuff that gets thrown at you. And so as, as you're entering a new year, I want to kind of give you permission to just push that reset button, take a step back, and hold yourself accountable to the two greatest commandments. Love God with everything you are. And love people the exact same way you would want to be loved. And allow your faith to be measured against the two greatest commandments. And, and don't get bombarded, don't get bogged down in the minutiae. And, and, and the little minor ways of how it could play out. And let, allow the Lord's Spirit to lead you. And so if, if you need that permission to kind of walk away from all the journaling assignments you've given yourself or the 18 Bible reading plans on version that you're like still clicking catch me up on or whatever. Like, like hey, delete them. I, I'm, I'm serious. When I say this, delete them and pray tomorrow morning, God, help me love you with everything I am today. Father, the people that I come in contact with, help me love them the exact same way I want to be loved. And then allow your calendar to get filled up, because it will. But I'm telling you that the awesome part of these two great commandments is how freeing they are. If we were to say, look, if, if Jesus expected us to live these out, then I can live these out. So let me pray for us. You're going to have some opportunity to talk it through. Uh, and, and, uh, and then at the end, Scott will come up and close us out. Father, we are grateful that you would love us enough to simplify our faith to two commandments. We know that there's so many complicated things we could be a part of, so many different ways we could live out our faith, but to know everything you expect of us is tied up in loving you and loving people is something that we can wrap our heads around, and we are thankful. So, Father, I pray that we would be heart-filled, mind-filled, soul-filled worshipers of you today throughout this year. Father, I pray that we would be people that bring your love into this world, that our families would know that we love them and that we would enact that love in a way that changes their lives. Father, now we, we do pray specifically for those people in our families, in our workplaces, 
our neighbors that don't know you. Let us never lose sight of sharing the love that you have bestowed on us with those around us. So, Father, I pray that you would convict our hearts and compel us to love people the way we want to be loved by sharing your love with them. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the, the YAP is updated. It should have questions now. On there, it looks a little bit different than it has in the past. You'll see a date, 1-6-19, then PTs, PTs.